We are in a race. The race is against time. I have been a rich man and I have been a poor man and I choose rich every time. Don't be one of those people 20 years from now are gonna be walking around in a nine to five job, miserable and angry and bitter. Welcome to Sound Conversations. Guys, welcome to Sound Conversations podcast. I'm excited to bring you my good buddy, Matthew Gardner. We had a great conversation. Matthew is a great human being, but he's also the chief economist for Windermere Real Estate. Now, what is Windermere? Windermere is the largest privately held real estate company in the United States. And um, Matthew specializes in residential market analysis, commercial industrial market analysis, financial analysis, and land use and regional economics. He is also the former principal of Gardner Economics and has more than 30 years of professional experience both in the United States and the United Kingdom. So Matt, thank you for coming and welcome to Sound Conversations podcast. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we're at the beautiful Washington Athletic Club on a sunny Seattle day, which is very rare this uh, this summer as it's just starting off. And uh, we're, we're very excited uh, to have a conversation with Matt and talk about um, his life, his work, and his accomplishments. So my first question um, is, what do you consider your greatest achievement? Greatest achievement? Um, I think it would have to be twofold. First one, um, it would actually be managing to raise my son so far. My youngest son's William's 14. I have three sons, um, 29, 27, and 14. The 29, 27-year-olds, I inherited. So I didn't <laughs> have much to do with them when they were younger. Uh, but William uh, just turned 14. And uh, it's an interesting, life's an interesting part now. It's a little more complicated, shall we say, than it was when I was a child. And so, so far, so good. Uh, he's off to high school next uh, in September. So I think that uh, having got managed to allow him to get into where he's got to so far, I, I would say would be the case. Um, so personally, it would definitely be that. Business-wise, um, that's, that's probably equally as interesting a question. Uh, I, I think when you look at what it is I do, which is essentially land use economics, uh, bringing more, um, the best way of putting it, I, I think that when you look at the residential real estate world, it historically has not been data-driven. Yeah. Uh, it's just all been kind of innuendo and thought, unlike the commercial world, which certainly was. So actually kind of dragging the residential world, kicking and mm. screaming into the 21st century, and saying, you know, these are things which are, we need to look at, they're remarkably important. I mean, for 97% of us, the most expensive thing we will ever buy in our lives is a house. Mm. And therefore, to start bringing out some more of the, the qualitative and quantitative analysis and start having that understood by the general public, uh, I would say probably is what it is. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Matt, we, uh, we skipped over this, but can you introduce yourself to, the, to our guests a little bit about your background sure. and, and what you've done okay. to get here? Uh, how did I get here? That's a long story. Probably gather. I'm not. I'm not from uh, from Bellevue, uh, <laughs> a little bit further east. So uh, I'm originally from London, uh, born and raised in London. Uh, went up to uh, to Oxford University for my undergraduate degree, uh, which I took in economics. I will never forget my mother um, when I said I was going to study economics. I'm like, what the hell are you going to do with an economics <laughs> degree? And I explained to her, mother, it's uh, every decision you make, I can find an economic principle behind it. Therefore. Hopefully, I should always be employed, at which point she said, great, crack on. <laughs> uh, I fell into land use, the reason being is St. John's, my, my college, is what's called one of the landed colleges. That meant that back in the 11th to 14th centuries, when, when you died, if you're a graduate uh, from the college, you left your land to your college and your cash to your family. 
very, very unusual. Very. And so therefore, um, St. John's became uh, a college which had huge, huge land holdings. I ended up working for the company that managed that estate, that portfolio, which kind of got me into real estate. One of their other clients was the, uh, the, the, well, two, the Church of England, and the other one was the Royal Family. Oh, wow. So uh, that the, uh, the connection with the, with the Crown Estate Commissioners brought me across the States because you didn't get uh, all of America back in 1776. We kept rather <laughs> the East Coast, so I was traveling to and from uh, the East Coast a lot. Tell us about that. I, uh, I, I know you've mentioned that to me in the past in our, our discussions, uh, but what, is, what does that mean? Oh, uh, well, that's, believe it or not, that's my one and only lifelong NDA that I, I can't enter. <laughs> All I can say is you've been in Boston, if you've been in Manhattan, I guarantee you've walked on land which belongs, doesn't belong to America. Oh, wow. It does belong to, to the crown. That's, that's about as far as I, I can take that. That's a huge reveal uh, for, for our <laughs> listeners, I'm, I'm sure. Um, okay, very interesting. Well, Matt, tell me, what is your idea of the perfect happiness? Perfect happiness? Yeah. Wow. Um, what, to be alive? Uh, yeah. I, I think it's about as good as it's going to get. Yeah. Uh, I, I think really uh, living a, a fulfilling life, doing something that you love to do. I found even when I was very, very young, for me, sports was it. It was rugby, squash, and cricket. Uh, doing what you love was, all of a sudden, it's not work. It, it's just it's pure it's pleasure. Fine. Yeah. I think if you can transpose that into the, your business world, then all of a sudden, work's not work. Yeah. Uh, work is something you just enjoy, you love. Time flies by. I've been an economist now for almost oh, 28 years. A uh, long time. <laughs> Still love what I do. Nice. And I think as long as you love what you do, then you're going to be passionate about it. You're going to be better at it, and also you don't think you're waking up because you've got to clock in and clock off uh, in, in whatever job you have. Uh, also, time flies by. <laughs> I find that as uh, I've let enough time to take vacations now, not that I don't want them, I'm just too busy and I don't yeah. think about it. Yeah. So uh, I think that loving what you do, uh, and also hopefully having the support of people around you, uh, both professionally, academically, and, and socially. If you can have those things, which is a very tough thing to come up with, believe it or not, yeah. in aggregate, if you can have those three things, I think you'll live a pretty healthier and happy life. Awesome. Thank you, Matt. I, uh, we appreciate that uh, suggestion and recommendation. So what is your current state of mind? We're, we are at the top of the whack, Washington Flutter Club. Uh, we're doing a podcast in a sunny Seattle day, so I'm keeping you inside. What, what, how, oh, I mean, how are you feeling? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm feeling great. Uh, <laughs> do, we, uh, do I always wake up with, with concerns over the planet uh, and everything else, sure. Yeah. Uh, the great thing about Seattle is that you know, when it's nice here for that three and a half or four months, it's, it's glorious. And by having that, that allows us to put up with eight months of dreariness. <laughs> so, uh, so it's tough to be in a bad mood when, when the weather's great outside. Um, so, I mean, kind of state of mind, I, good, but the trouble is now, again, because of social media, because of just media in general, uh, everything's instantaneous. You can't get away from it. So historically speaking, years ago, I used to wake up about 4.30, turn on CNBC, find what's going on, pre-market trading. Now, first thing I do is pick up my phone, look at Twitter. <laughs> and kind of, what has our president said today? Um, and so when I look at, at uh, what I'm thinking about, I, I think um, uh, political policy right now is something which, again, because it's based in economics, or at least it should be, uh, is something which... Uh, which keeps me awake at night. Yeah. Um, you know, life goes on, but what I would say is in general, our life is, is very much different now, going back to the days when I started work, mm-hmm. when I mean, fax machines didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah, things were telex machines, so you kind of basic typewriters over phone. <laughs> and so now it's just instantaneous. You have to be very careful not to get too tied in 
with the minutiae, too tied in yeah. with being told things kind of every ten, every two seconds, quite frankly. Right. So, no, right now, feeling good, yeah. uh, feeling happy. That's a good part. Summer's coming up. That's uh, it's all good. Awesome. That's great to hear. Um, Matt, other than being uh, a chief economist, mm-hmm. what other work have you done that you've enjoyed? Wow. I mean, uh, work. It's, it's all I've ever done. It's all you've ever done. All I've ever okay. done. Uh, I mean, unless I can go back to kind of bartending when I was <laughs> at school. Okay. Um, which, well, I'm uh, sure you enjoyed that. Uh, no, that was, that was, that's always fun when, when you could keep up. But no, I mean, really, it's, um, I, I was very, very lucky. I found my vocation. Uh-huh. found out something which I, which I loved. Yeah. Uh, I love educating. Uh, and not only whether it be technically speaking at the university or, or just in general through my lectures, my speeches, um, bringing something to the table uh, that is applicable to people's lives. Yeah. So I, I think that's, that's, uh, that's basically, it's all I've ever done. It's all I ever will do, quite frankly. Cool. So it sounds like you found your perfect vocation and this is what you enjoy. You love it. You, you thrive in it. You're, you're a chief economist. So, um, my question is to to get you there. Did somebody was there a mentor that um, you seeked out or seeked you out and uh, help you help lead you in that path, or was it something that you came up on your own? I kind of came up with it. Uh, okay. I remember when I, I came to initially to Seattle in um, okay. 1992, and I'll never forget. I was I was on sabbatical. I was actually visiting my sister, who happened to be living up here back then, working with Microsoft. And um, what I found fascinating about Seattle is a kind of fun story. Uh, I was walking around downtown, kind of enjoying the sights, kind of checking out what was going on. Everything was vital, everything was busy. I'm, of course, I'm from London. I'm used to being around about nine and a half million people. <laughs> Seattle is, is very parochial, very provincial <laughs> in a lot of respects. But it was busy going on. Uh, I'll never forget, I stopped in on First Avenue, a place called the Library Bar, um, down opposite the Warshaw Sporting Goods Building. Um, and at three o'clock, one in there, had a couple of cocktails, great. I walked out at about no later than six. I could have fired a bazooka down First Avenue and not hit anyone. <laughs> I thought, well, where did everyone go? This is very surreal. And uh, being an analyst, I, I kind of get carried away, and so I run off to the library, and I figured out that everyone worked in Seattle. No one lived in Seattle. So I said, well, who analyzes real estate? Who tells people what they should be building? And essentially, most developers lick their thumbs, stuck it in the air, and say, <laughs> okay, we will build this. Um, I said, well, what, uh, perhaps that's not the right way to go. And so I went around actually a lot of different development companies, brokerage companies, and said, do you represent new construction? What if you could go to your clients and tell them that we can tell you what you should build, when you should build it, how much you can lease it for, sell it for, whatever, what the world's going to be like in the next five, seven years. And uh, that's how I essentially chose to stay in Seattle. Wow. So most of my my mentors, a lot have actually been developers. Mm. I've been very fortunate uh, to have had the uh, development community uh, embraced what I was doing and also assist me. And so a lot of the principals of a lot of the major development companies, legacy partners, Avalon Bay, Volker, these kind of guys, uh, I have learned a lot from. As much as I've taught them, I've learned from them. Very interesting. And so I think really people within that sphere of real estate, and real estate is remarkably nepotistic. Everyone knows everyone, quite frankly. Yeah. It's a very, very small world. Um, so I think if I have questions and concerns, a lot of these people out there that actually were clients of mine, I end up having dinners with them, cocktails with them, what have you. And they taught me an awful lot, as much as I taught them. Yeah, wow. And so it's very much a, uh, a symbiotic relationship as much as anything else. Sounds like a very collaborative environment, collegial and... and very much so, fantastic. yeah. Okay. Um, you mentioned a few of the companies' names that you've worked with. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I, I know a little bit about them, and I think our listeners do as well. 
but I see them as mostly local developers, people that are developing in our backyard. Are these companies out, are they expanding beyond the Pacific Northwest region or are they just focused locally? No, I mean, well, if you look at the couple I've, I've named, I mean, Avalon Bay is the largest uh-huh. institutional real estate investment trust residential oh. in America. Oh, okay. So it, it's it's across the country. Okay. Legacy Partners, again, is pretty, pretty major across the country. The one that isn't and is definitely the most unique, mm-hmm. I would argue, would be Vulcan. Right. And Vulcan Real Estate. And I'm sure many of your readers would be aware of the, the story behind South Lake Union. Uh, and Mr. Allen's goal initially of buying as much of it as he could, he bought about 64 acres of South Lake Union, mm-hmm. an insane amount of space, but with a view to give it away, yeah. with a view of making it central park of the West Coast. Right. And as uh, Seattle residents are known or prone to do, they <laughs> voted it down, so they didn't want to do it, at which point he said, well, fine, then let's start building it. So he's obviously, he's more than, he's probably almost two thirds away through what he could build there. So are they looking elsewhere? Obviously it's not for me to, to speak to, to what they're doing, but what is public knowledge is, yes. Are they looking at areas outside of South Lake Union? Sure. Mm-hmm. Bellevue, yes. Uh, Central District, yes. So I think ultimately, will they expand out from that base? I believe they probably will. Cool. But they are still essentially, the, the, but a very unique local-based company, um, which was started from somebody that, as we all are aware, not, real estate was not a big thing uh, mm-hmm. for Mr. Mm-hmm. Allen. Mm-hmm. has now become a big, big thing for us. Very, very nice. So um, I want to take a moment and just go back into uh, go back into the questions of your favorite occupation. It sounds like you know you found this <clears throat> career on your own. You chose it. You built it, um, and you're you're getting something out of it that's <clears throat> beyond just your know, compensation. It's it's a it's an exciting. Uh, opportunity to be involved with the creation of, of residential housing um, and development. So that's fantastic. Um, what uh, What is a little bit of a different place now? What is your f- most favorite tre- uh, treasured possession? Oh, if you had wow. one. Uh, uh, treasured possession. A pair of my grandfather's cufflinks. Uh, it's, it's a bizarre thing. Huh. Um, my grandfather was my mentor. Um, uh, I actually was end up living with for, for a period of time. Oh, wow. um, uh, taught me everything from um, how to tie my laces to how to tie a bow tie. So he, <laughs> he was uh, he was my hero. Unfortunately, he died very young. I was oh, 12 when he died. Um, oh, wow. So I happen to have uh, a pair of his, his cufflinks, which are, I, without a question, my most treasured possession. Reminds me of my grandfather, somebody cool. who I aspire um, to be as good as. Was, was he an economist as well? No, he wasn't. Um, uh, my, my grandfather actually had, had a chain of mortuaries. Oh, yeah. Um, no, no. Wow. Uh, he used to um, open up his, his offices opposite old people's homes in London. Um, I mean, makes sense. It's kind of it's built. Very strategic. Built, it's very strategic. <laughs> built, built in business or built in an environment. And, so he, and I had no idea that's what he did until I, I think he was probably died before I was aware of it. Mm. Oh, I know. So he, would, he used to go off to work and that, that was it. Uh, always in a boat, always in a. Uh, dress coat and, and tie, mm-hmm. even going on vacations. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. I see photographs from airports. That you, but back in the days when you used to dress up to, to fly, uh, back in the 60s and 70s. I miss those days. Uh, as do I, quite frankly, <laughs> but a different story. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, he was a, a major, major influence in my life. And so my treasured possession, I would have to say, would, would be that. So it's, uh, wow. I hadn't really thought about that for many years. So thank you for reminding That's me. That's so cool. I look forward to seeing them next mm-hmm. time. Sure. Next time we hang out. Um, what or who is the greatest love of your life? My wife. 
Um, yeah, I, I think that we we are only great answer. As, I'm sure she appreciates. Well, yeah, we we are only as good as as our support system around us. Um, you mentioned that, and, and Marcy, uh, without a doubt, is. I mean, yeah. uh, I have a very frenetic job, but so does she. Yeah, but she manages the household and and then down to the, all the bills. So uh, when it's when you have somebody there that can assist you outside of, of your assistance at work, for example, yeah. and I have those. Um, and it supports what you do and supports the direction you're going. Um, I think if you can be lucky enough to have that kind of person, mm-hmm. that, without a doubt, is huge. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure that goes both ways for you being a support oh, uh, center so. for her as well. And, yeah, yeah. And if you were to give our listeners a couple tips on, on successful marriages, uh, <laughs> because as a newlywed, recently right. newlywed yes, for you myself, um, you know, obviously success of the marriage and success of the relationship is, is important. Uh, consideration. So, oh, what wow. would you give? Patience. Patience. Okay. Patience. I mean, a, a lot of, of my friends, colleagues, associates, business partners, um, very class type A personalities, mm-hmm. and that's that's who we are. And sometimes we can tend to be a little bit opinionated, <laughs> um, and that can be can be good. But I would say, um, listen more than you talk. Is I would say without a doubt the most okay. important thing. Now, even if you've come home from a 16-hour day or got off a plane or whatever, um, and a lot of times, certainly when you're apart, you can get home, and all of a sudden there's this kind of downflow of information, all of a sudden that you're, you're being told about everything and anything. A lot of times you don't want to do that. You want yeah. to decompress. Right. Listen. Listen. I mean, listening without a doubt, I would say, is the key to, to a successful marriage, um, probably more than anything else. That and, and being supportive, uh, and again, both ways. Yeah. My wife supports my profession. I support hers. Yeah. Um, and, and mutual support is as important. And I guess finally, give have time, make time, make time. My wife and I we travel a lot. Uh, weekends, generally speaking, we'll jump on a plane Friday, come back Sunday. Uh, we're foodies as well, so we tend to go places outside of the state just to go to a restaurant. Oh. So we we'll go down to Southern California, Santa Monica. We've got some great restaurants there. Cool. We'll go to Chicago. Uh, there's some new restaurants opening up there, which are fun. So. Again, make that time to be together. Yeah. It's very easy to be apart for 12, 14, 16 hours in a very, day. Yeah. Then you get home, you pour yourself into bed and sleep. Make time. Yeah, that's not sustainable, of course. Uh, yeah, honestly, it's really not. So uh, if you make time for each other, then that is, gives you a really great base upon which to work. So take that time off. And it could be go for a walk around Green Lake yeah. or it could be anything. Cool. But, but have that time. So when you do that, it means the time you're apart, that, that can be okay as well. So make time. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Great, very sage advice. Uh, t- let's talk about you. What's your favorite journey? Journey. Um, I- I'm a kayaker, as you know. Uh-huh, I do. Um, so every year for the last eight years, uh, I, I go up to northern British Columbia. So I go up to north, actually, north point of Vancouver Island, mm-hmm. a place called Port McNeil. And um, get up there, get uh, provision up, and then I get a water taxi, takes me out to a place called the Brown Archipelago, which is an archipelago of several hundred islands yeah. off the northeast coast of Vancouver Island. I get dumped off there with a friend of mine mm-hmm. and picked up again a week and a half later. And you are literally, literally off the grid. What you don't have in your kayak, you don't have. There's no 7-Elevens, there's no way to get out. <laughs> uh, so for me, it's a trip which I've done, which is coming up actually in about a month's time, right. which is my, that's that's my time. Yeah. And it's a time you really can decompress. My biggest worry when I'm doing that is uh, finding a beach to sleep on that night <laughs> uh, or, or not kind of getting too far in the way of orcas and humpback whales. Yeah, let's talk about orcas really quickly. So the mm. Puget Sound is uh, home to a few different orca pods. Resident pods. Resident sure. pods. Yeah. 
And uh, a few years ago, um, I don't know why I didn't do it earlier, but a few years ago, I did a whale watching tour. Mm -hmm. And we went to Vancouver Island off of Victoria, took a boat out. And I was amazed at how massive these animals are, uh, especially their dorsal fins coming out of the water. I mean, I'm a a water person. I've surfed, I've sailed, all kinds of things, canoe surfed. Uh, but I've never seen that large of an animal that closely, and I was astounded at how massive they are. So, how do you feel when you're in the uh, kayak it, it, and, and you have one of those it's, animals? It's, when I say belittling, it, it, it's, uh, I think it gives you a, a, an interesting impression on your scale relative to the planet. Yeah. And you mentioned orca. Orca are big, great. Um, you also know being close to a humpback whale because there's a lot of humpbacks and minke whales uh, in BC as well. Humpbacks are massive, mm. and they mm. are huge. So I've actually been um, out kayaking, um, about to come into the beach, and you'll see a humpback who's rolling in a bed of, <laughs> in, in a bed of kelp, because they, they love the, the feeling, the tactile nature of it. And you can actually literally see these 60, 70-foot-long beasts who are, are huge. Wow. Uh, and that, that really gives you some interesting <laughs> perspective uh, on the world and on, on our remarkably small place in it and so for me it's awesome Um, wildlife in all respects is Um, oceans are remarkably important Um, absolutely we're we're not treating them with the respect they deserve in any way shape or form but when you look at the oceans again you can go out off Vancouver Island uh, a place called the Johnson Strait which is a big strait which runs Mm -hmm. down off the east part of the island Mm -hmm. and I can be sat out there on on a calm day uh, watching whales and, and orca and porpoises and what have you but just as that, uh, I, I'm sat in a 19-foot-long kayak, uh, yet the water that I'm sat on is two miles deep. Um, that does give you a kind of interesting view on, on the world. Um, we're not that big. We are remarkably small. Yep. And so I think that is something which really rings, rings true with me. Uh, orca are great. Um, orcs are fascinating. They're, they're a maternal species. Hmm. So uh, the mothers rule the roost. Okay. And so sometimes you'll find three or four generations and the lead orca will always be female. Oh, interesting. And when that orca dies, mm. and sometimes the pod will actually break up. It'll split up. They'll oh, go, wow. They'll create their own. They'll go out their own ways. But they're a matriarchal society. Huh. Probably the reason why they work so well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> Definitely. Um, they, they are they're remarkable, remarkable animals. Uh, in, in, in all respects. Now, do you ever paddle in the evening under starlight? Or yep. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. You go out and go to the space. A lot of times you'll, you'll want to get off the water by come 3, 34 o'clock. Um, that tends to be when, when winds come up. Uh-huh. And, and you, then you'll suddenly start seeing some swells and some white caps and what have you. And, and that's fine yeah. to paddle through, but it becomes work sure. uh, and not pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you're literally having to concentrate on, on going where you're going rather than just paddling. Cool. Uh, but you get out at night, yeah. Um, what's fun in some parts um, up there is bioluminescence. Oh, really? Yeah. So you wow. can actually, close you get, as you're coming in close to the shore, you can beat your paddle, especially if it's full pitch black. And you'll see everything. Just light, the water will just light up. Wow! Um, it's really it's quite amazing thing to, to wow. look at. And that's that's, that, nice. that's so yeah. Night paddles are always fun. Yeah. Uh, again, if it's nice and calm, and before I've got into having a beer or so, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a good thing to do. So yeah, it's that probably for me is a one trip I will continue to do until I can't paddle anymore. Okay. I hope that's many many years uh, from now. I hope so as well. Um, now, when you when you started this journey um, some time ago, did you did you go through any classes or any place to learn how to how to do this, or no. just on your own? Let's go. Picked up a kayak. Yeah, a friend of mine. Um, again, well, I've done. I've, t- I've taken some lessons, um, sure. safety lessons with REI, these uh-huh. kinds of things. So yeah, okay. sure. I mean, obviously, safety is, is imperative. Yeah. 
Um, but in general, no. Now, and I've, I've kayaked, even when I was back at school as well, a lot smaller, and they're not ocean kayaks, so they're a lot tighter, a lot smaller, a <laughs> lot easier to, uh, to turn. To turn. Um, yeah. But in general, no. You just have, It's one of those things whereby I'm less worried about the world around me, more about the kit that I have with me. Now, what is anything falling off my boat? Have I got anything yeah. squared away? Right. Uh, my water. hatch covers sealed properly. Yeah. All these kind of things, which are very important because you can get dead really, mm. kind of quickly. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, the classes, uh, uh, I'll do some weekend classes. Um, there's several associations. Mm -hmm. And again, mm -hmm. refreshers more than anything else. Very cool. Um, so is this where you would say is the, the happiest uh, that you are? Is this environment where you are the happiest or is that at home with your family um, or somewhere else? I think you can say it's, it'd be very easy to say, you know, life at home is the most important thing. I think it's a balance. Yeah. I think you need to yeah. balance your family time with your personal time. Yeah, I think I, what I found is people that give up too much just to their family, they're living vicariously through them. That's not a balance. Agreed. I think it's remarkably important. Yeah. Have your own things you're interested in, your own friends that you're with. Uh, and and it's, it's still in that respect, it's a very hard balance to have as well. Mm -hmm. But you need to do that. So if you go wholly with your peer group and ignore your family, that won't work. Not good, yeah. If you go wholly with your family uh, and, and missing out your friends, I don't think that works either. Right. So I think yeah, create right. that balance and you have to have it. Cool. I think if you do, then you can do both things. So my trips, my guy can trip is something which is sacrosanct. Yeah. <laughs> my, my, my family or my wife knows that that week is the same week I go every year. That's that I'm out. My company, again, says the same thing. They realize I'm not going to be there. <laughs> Whatever is going on, I won't. So your company, tell, tell us a little bit about Windermere. I know you're the chief economist for Windermere. Right. Well, you've got to, you've got to back up a little bit. I, okay. I've been a, I've, I had my own consulting company uh -huh. uh, since mid-90s. Uh, why I, I said on my, uh, my school reports, doesn't play well with others. Uh, I, I was never a very good employee. And so after I left the UK, I set up my own, my own shop. Uh, and basically consulting with developers and with real estate companies like Windermere. So I started having a relationship with them in the late 90s. And about 2010, uh, one of the co-presidents, Obi Jacobi, um, of the Jacobi family, the founders of Windermere, uh, I'd known for a long time. We were obviously coming out of the recession. He and I were having a, a cocktail somewhere. Mm -hmm. I think, why do we not know what was going to happen? The question you always ask me. Mm -hmm. I said the same thing. Well, I told you it was going to happen, but no one listened, uh, and no one did. Uh -huh. Everyone thought the world's going to be great, life is going to go on. Um, and he said, "Well, you need to come work for us." And, and I said, uh, "Nope, I, I don't play well with others." Um, no, he did that for five years um, of courting, <laughs> and eventually, in uh, three years ago, uh, he kind of essentially, I guess you'd say, uh, maybe an offer I couldn't refuse. Um, <laughs> And so here I am. Uh, Forest Windermere, obviously the largest regional company, uh, real estate company, residential brokerage uh, on the West Coast, quite frankly, at least privately held. Mm -hmm. We have about uh, a bit more than 300 offices in 10 states. I have about 6,200 brokers wow. um, or real estate agents. And my job is to make them the most uh, smartest ones in their markets. Nice. Because again, we go back to 70s, 80s, even to a degree the 90s, Selling real estate, well, if you like the house, great, then buy it. Now a lot of people, and certainly right now, given the housing bubble bursting in 2008, they're asking a lot more questions mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. So fundamental understanding of economics uh, becomes increasingly important. Uh, and it's remarkable how many people don't, for example, Fed funds rate. So a Federal mm -hmm. Reserve increases interest rates, and everyone presumes, well, mortgage rates go up. Well, no, they don't. Mm. There is a very light association between 
those two uh, data points. Um, mortgage rates track yield on 10-year treasuries, and, and it's a almost perfect correlation. The only reason why there's a spread, that's the risk associated with a mortgage uh, over a treasury, which is essentially guaranteed by the government. So I tell everyone, and certainly our brokers uh, and uh, agents, if you want to know what's going on with interest rates, track the yield on 10-year paper. Ten that's paper. all you've got to do. Very nice. But these are things which, again, are, are something that I know about, I'm yeah. fully cognizant <laughs> with. A lot of people weren't, and uh -huh. it surprised them, which I found kind of quite quite interesting. Nice. I think a lot of people now are far more interested in in demographics, certainly yeah. with the millennial generation. Are they going to buy houses? Are they going to be perma renters? Uh, the, the baby boomers. Uh, uh, when are they going to start downsizing? Are mm -hmm. they ever going to retire? And so I think now it's become um, a lot more scientific, shall we say. Yeah. And certainly comes like Redfin and Truly and Zillow and data right. providers like that are bringing more data to the table. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a great thing in my opinion. But I think it's certainly becoming um, uh, more scientific in people's approach. Because mm -hmm. classically, a lot of people, again, who lost a lot of money or maybe unfortunately lost their house in the recession, right. are saying, you know, why did I do this? Well, should I ever do it again? So I think you, know, you need to start looking at a lot of more fundamental economic principles. So not, not, not PhD stuff. Right. Um, but the fundamentals. But the fundamentals of, you know, yeah. what is demand, what is supply, where are interest rates going, what are the things which can affect housing values and housing demand. So that's what I bring to, uh, to my company. And uh, I spend about six months a year traveling across our entire region. We got as far east as Denver, Colorado, mm -hmm. south to San Diego and the Baja Peninsula. Uh, north to Bellingham. Wow. So we're essentially a, a West Coast-based company. Wow. Very, very fascinating. Um, this this brings up some questions with, with real estate since, you know, your work is uh, real estate focused, um, specializing in, in residential real estate. Uh, you know, Seattle, uh, young professionals living in Seattle are looking at uh, entry-level price tags in the market of a million dollars. Yep. Uh, so... What advice do you have for for those uh, individuals that are millennials and they're looking to buy their first home? They're facing a million dollar price tag. Um, well, so here's what's fascinating. I think I can go back. I remember being on a, a I think I was, I think it was CNN or CNBC uh, back in 2009 um, in a robust conversation about housing. And one of the other panelists was the real estate professor from the Wharton School, uh, Pennsylvania. And she was saying, you know what, these millennials, they're going to be perma-renters. They're going to have 13 jobs in their career, on average, as opposed to seven that my generation had. Mm. They're not going to be wanting to be tied to a house. Mm -hmm. So that's why, essentially, we've seen so much of, so much of a robust development of apartments. Mm. Because a lot of people listened to that and said, okay. okay. I completely disagree with them, which is a fascinating argument to have on, on live TV. I said, well, no, they're going to do everything that our generation did. They're just going to do it three to five years later. Okay. And that's essentially has been proven. To, I, I was I was right. <laughs> um, they are so. But what they're doing, uh, millennials are, they are getting married later in life. They are having less children, or indeed sometimes no children. Yeah. But the point being is, when they do start getting away from that kind of cohabiting situation, they don't want to raise kids if they're going to have them after getting married in an apartment. Mm -hmm. They do want to buy. Sixty-nine percent believe that buying a home will be the most astute financial investment they will ever make. But the trouble is about 73% of them believe they couldn't qualify for a mortgage. Big issue there. Yeah. Now, where, then secondly from that, okay, we know they're going to move out of apartments. They're living downtown. Mm. They've got out of school. They're living in the heart of the city, enjoying everything that comes along with it, which is a great thing. But when they do decide to move, where do they want to move to? That's where they're getting stuck. 
they would like to have one foot in town and one foot out. Mm. They don't want to be out in Issaquah or Snoqualmie. Mm. So uh, Columbia City, Georgetown, Green Lake, okay. the, these kind of Queen Anne. Right. But the trouble is they can't afford it. Yeah. And that's a big, big issue. So as much as they want to be in these ex-urban areas, mm -hmm. they are being pushed out to the Snoqualmie's, the Redmond Ridge. Um, Shoreline, maybe. Yeah, I mean, out of the county. Mm. We've actually seen slowing down of, of net migration into King County as a function of home prices. And historically, what you did, if you couldn't afford to buy a house in King County, you jumped on I-5, you drove north, and so you could drive to buy, right? Yeah, yeah, drive to buy. Well, now, Snohomish County is getting expensive enough. People are jumping on 5-5 and having to drive south into Pierce County. Oh, wow. Which is a significant over $100,000 median price difference between Pierce and Snohomish counties. Mm. And then have that fun commute um, up, into, mm -hmm. up into town, which yeah. I would not wish on anyone. No. But they're being pushed out. So where they want to live as opposed to where they can live, they're also lumbered with relatively modest credit ratings for a lot of them. Mm -hmm. uh, so not that high yet because they didn't spend time through college building up that credit, which they should have done, yeah. I would argue, but hindsight's 2020. Yeah. They're also lumbered with this huge amount of student debt. Right now there's about $1.4 trillion of outstanding student debt in America, wow. which is a third more than our credit card debt, give wow. you some kind of perspective. And an average uh, kid in America right now, kid, young man, young woman, coming out with an undergraduate degree from a four-year university, is walking away with an average of $40,000 worth of debt. That's across America. That's not just you done. So they have a lot of debt. And also, in, as importantly, it's coming up with that down payment. Yeah. I mean, they used to, the bank of mum and dad, right? 1-800-MOM-HELP. <laughs> uh, it's a down payment assistance program. Mum and dad aren't, aren't so into lending anymore. No. That they used to, no. And also with, uh, with the tax laws that have changed, they used to tap their lines of credit. Yeah. Or helix various things mm -hmm. uh, to help their children out. Well, now with the recent tax changes, you can't deduct that anymore. Oh. You can't deduct that interest. Wow. So they're being now 25% are still going to the bank of mum and dad. Yeah. That's what they're using. They're also looking at a low down payment programs out there. Like FHA or? Right, FHA, even to a degree VA, uh, mm -hmm. for those that served. So you're seeing that. And that's also driving a lot of people away from traditional banks, so from the mm -hmm. BMAs of Wells Fargo's, mm -hmm. and into credit unions. Mm. And a lot of credit unions also offer those low down payment programs. Okay. Every state also has different assistance programs as well. So it's not a case you have to come up with 20%, you don't, mm -hmm. it be a lot less than that, but it's still hard. And as you mentioned earlier, when you're looking at an entry-level price point of eight, nine million dollars, um, that's tough for, quite frankly, anyone of any age. Yeah. Now, are they gonna buy? Yes, they are. Understand the fact that the eldest millennials now are in their early to mid-30s. They grew up. And as they do that, they are getting married, they are gonna have kids, they are gonna to wanna to buy. So we're gonna have this pent-up demand, but we haven't got the supply. So uh, kind of jumping on my, uh, uh, too, too much out, out of the weeds in it, we as a region, certainly, and we as a city, need to look at prevailing zoning and say, is that still accurate? As it was back in the 80s or 70s or even before. And I would argue, absolutely not. Okay. We change some zoning. I'm not saying build towers everywhere, because right. towers are expensive. Yep. And so that's virtually, there's been no entry-level housing in a 40-story tower, period. So uh, let's look at townhomes. Let's look at increasing density from four units per acre to six. ADUs, uh, accessory dwelling units, there are all kinds of things out there, which I think are remarkably important uh, yeah. as a region, yeah. and certainly as a city, but you get a lot of pushback. 
Yeah, from the city council? Or no, from... no. The pushback the city council would love to do as much okay. as possible. They are, shall we say, somewhat liberal. Um, <laughs> but the pushback is actually from the neighbours, the neighbourhoods. Okay. Saying, um, we, we, they don't want density development? No. They, they, okay. it, we as a population, certainly in Seattle, are remarkably liberal. And we are. Yeah. Uh, which is great. And, and part of the reason why I love Seattle as, as a city. But, you know, build the affordable housing or, or the dense housing. Just don't build it in my backyard. So we have this. Build it over there. Somewhere. We have this nimby mentality, right? Not in my backyard, uh, and that's that's where we're stuck right now. And I think we need to change that. And I'll give you just one last uh, impression, which I, I think really explains a lot. I actually overlaid. I created a, a map of the city of Seattle, and the map of the city of Paris, France. Hmm. You can fit Paris into North Seattle. Paris with a population of two point two million people. Seattle with a population of seven hundred eighty thousand. Do not for one minute think that Seattle is dense, not even close to it. Wow. So, and I think there's a lot of uh, unintended consequences if we don't change that, those policies. And the unintended consequences, as far as I, I can see, uh, will get housing affordability will get completely out of whack, and companies that are thinking about being in Seattle will start choosing somewhere More else. Like maybe Idaho? Boise. Boise. Big time. Yeah. Boise, Spokane. Um, Spokane, certainly in the healthcare industry, is mm-hmm. huge. Spokane used to run, literally track the aluminum industry. That's what it was. It's a huge aluminum center. Huh. Now it's now it's medical. So, at what point do we find companies saying, you know what, you're just too expensive? Sure. Uh, because to us to open here, we've got to pay people X amount of dollars just to afford to live. Yeah. That's too much. Well, I mean, that's what's happening in Silicon Valley, right? Entrepreneurs are getting funding there, but they're going somewhere else to open up their shops. Yeah, I mean, look uh, at migration to Seattle. So much of it's coming out of the Bay Area. Yeah. Because, and here's a fun little thing about that, is that Bay Area employees think Seattle housing is cheap. It's surreal. <laughs> so median home price in King County is about $700,000. In the San Francisco, it's about $1.5 million. Rent here is mm. running three to three dollars and fifty cents a square foot. We're knocking mm. on six dollars a square foot in the Bay Area. Wow! Office space twice as expensive. So you can actually, because we don't have a state income tax, you know, a, a say somebody in software sure. can come up here, be essentially making less absolute dollars, but given the far lower cost of living, they're making actually dramatically more than they were making in the Bay Area. Fascinating, fascinating. Okay, let's go take a step back to the the, the neighborhood uh, that's not. Approving a density uh, uh, zoning change, how would you change their mind? So if you're if you were to talk to you know, say let's pick a neighbor Greenlake, you talk to the Greenlake neighborhood and advise them that zoning changes is a good thing for the population, it's a good thing for the city, it's a good thing for the neighborhood. How, how would you do that? It's very hard. There's a reason why it's very hard. I understand the fact that Seattle is remarkably linear. Yeah. Okay, Northgate to South Center, sure. and we have water on both sides, yeah. and, and a big hill in the middle. <laughs> so um, we ha- that our land mass is not very substantial at all. So there's not actually not that much in the way of available land upon which to build. So what yeah. we're seeing, um, to a degree in, in Green Lake, certainly for example in Ballard, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. people, your developers who are buying three or four existing old falling down craftsman houses, mm-hmm. they're buying them. It's paying a lot of money for it, but the underlying value of the land is greater than the value of the asset on it. Mm-hmm. So they're then raising that site mm-hmm. and building something denser on it, where they are allowed to. So what you end up having actually is almost a replacement. So people that own those little old craftsman houses, they mm-hmm. believe they're being kicked out almost to a degree. Huh. Now obviously they don't have to sell, yeah. um, but you're replacing three or four houses with 18 or 20 or 22. 
it's a very hard thing to do because people don't want to see it. Um, I, think, I certainly think there are ways around it, but it's going to be almost incremental. A transit-oriented development. We know at some point, light rail, mass transit, uh, infrastructure will be in place mm -hmm. a long way away, but increasing density around those station those areas, yeah. those within a quarter mile of that, that's going to be important. We see that already on, on Roosevelt, for example, yeah. and up in the U District. That is what I expect to see. I would also see, uh, say that we'll see a lot more of it potentially occurring in the central district of Seattle. Hmm. Um, central district is by definition from Madison down to Dearborn. Mm -hmm. um, but again, the issue you have there is that displacement. And not so much displacement, but gentrification. Hmm. So, you know, I've lived here, my family's lived here, you're building these apartments, but the apartment rents are gonna be $3 a square foot, or, or give or take. Mm -hmm. Yes, they will because unfortunately that's what it costs to build. And so even with a relatively modest return, that's the way of the world now. So their belief is that we're gentrifying, as we gentrify, that's gonna push lower income cohorts further out. Very cool. Ways around that, it, it, inclusionary zoning, where a developer can build, but he has to provide a certain percentage of the units as being affordable. Affordable housing, yeah. Well, then you get into the affordable housing argument, which is actually a, a fascinating one, but probably not for today, <laughs> when you actually look at, I think the provision of housing at 30 to 50% of median income actually is not that bad. Mm -hmm. Entities like Lehigh, various other groups out there are doing it, where I fear what we are lacking hugely is workforce housing. Workforce housing. Workforce housing is people making between 80 and 120% of median income. Okay. Not a huge amount of money, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, these are the, the, the firefighters, the nurses, sure. the teachers. The teachers, yeah. And where are they going to live? So I think you can lose very low income. I think there are programs out there, in Section 8, there's all kinds of different mm -hmm. programs out there. Are we building enough of it, quite frankly? Well, I mean, I think down in Yesler Terrace we'll see a lot more over time. But it is that workforce component. Workforce People will live within 35 minutes of where they work if they know it's going to take them 35 minutes. Yeah. That frees up a lot of land outside of the downtown core. Mm -hmm. But the trouble is, unless we have a suitable mass transit infrastructure right. to say, yes, you will be down at Third and Columbia by, in 35 minutes, right. people won't use it. Well, the good news is that the city of Seattle, uh, re the residents of Seattle did approve mass transit uh, tax a couple, was it a couple of years yeah, ago? Yeah, Prop 1. I mean, the larger, one. For, for a period, the largest single bond measure in American history, uh, right. overtaken by Los Angeles a few months later. But <laughs> it, it's a huge bond measure. Why everyone's property taxes have gone up precipitously yeah. in the last couple of years. But it's a case of timing. Uh -huh. Now, they will tell you, you know, you can go from uh, Pioneer Square to uh, to Redmond in 2025 on light rail. It's going to be great. Well, fine. I don't want to go to Redmond. Um, it's not helping me. Yeah. So I feel, I and mean, I voted for it. Yeah. I was a great fan of it, but I feel as if it's going to be or was the most philanthropic thing that I will ever do. <laughs> I'm happy to pay for it. Yeah. I'm never going to use it. Right. <laughs> so you have fixed rail. But fixed rail has its issues take from A to B. Then you can have well, increased bus service, improved bus service. Sure. Well, the issue with that is we're not going to make any more roads. And if we're not making any more roads, we love our single occupancy vehicles. Yes, we do. And we will Absolutely. use them. And as long as we are sat in the same traffic as that bus, we'll sit in our car. <laughs> we will only change our mentality when we're sat in traffic and that bus is scooting by us on its own lane. Yeah. Then we'll use it. But it's very, very hard to do that. Mm -hmm. Look at rapid ride transit from Ballard, let's say, down 15th into town, into Belltown. A lot of days you can walk it quicker, quite frankly. So it's uh, it, 
But the issues we have as a city is, I mentioned at the start of our conversation, I considered Seattle to be remarkably provincial. Mm-hmm. Everyone worked in Seattle, everyone lived in a place called Bellevue, and that's just <laughs> the way it worked. It's growing up, uh, immensely so, very rapidly. Very much. And therefore it's having these grown-up problems, uh, which require grown-up solutions. Yeah. I don't think there is no one fix to anything, quite frankly. I think it will be incremental. But unless we start doing it now, we will start losing out, not only uh, to the Idaho's, the Spokane's, but to the Portland's of this world as well. But then they're starting to see the same issues. Yeah. Uh, We're seeing Utah, to a degree, having housing affordability problems. Denver, Colorado, seeing the same thing. So the West Coast is growing as we see that migration away from the Midwest, which started and will continue. Basically, everyone's going to be moving away from the central part of the country to each coast and southwest. That's the way it's going to work. Is anybody going to be left in the middle? (laughs) Not many, uh, quite frankly. Let's take a a moment of pause, um, and then we will come back with Matt and continue the conversation. Sound Conversations. Uh, Welcome back. We are uh, starting um, our conversation again with Matt after our break, Matt Gardner. Uh, So, Matt, uh, we covered a lot of things about the city. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the trends in our area, uh, housing trends. What, what are you seeing? Is it micro-housing? Is it solar, um, e-vehicles, foreign buyers? What's right. happening? Um, trends, uh, well, obviously, as we've mentioned already, um, my biggest concern is over housing affordability and the lack of it. Okay. So what we need to see is the provision of it. Now, is that a trend that's in place now? No, it's not. Uh, could it be in the future? I think it, it, well, we need to address it. Um, micro-housing? Is something which we are seeing in other parts outside of the city of Seattle because it was made functionally illegal for a period of time. I think that's going to get changed again. That's going to be a good thing. So I think that's going to be important. Uh, I think we are living smaller. And it's actually, it's funny because it's uh, encompassing multiple demographics. Mm -hmm. Uh, Older people as they retire, downsizing, smaller. Uh, The younger, uh, say millennial generation, they have less stuff. The, the my generation, for example. Mm-hmm. And I'm just uh, often, I'm, I'm last year of Gen X, I believe, uh, is when I was born. Um, and so I can go back, and the, the analogy I always use is back at college, uh, I had this amazing TV, 24-inch TV. It was three and a half feet wide and two and a half feet deep and weighed 700 pounds. My, my stereo system stood five feet tall. Uh, it rocked. It was great. <laughs> what does the, what do the millennials have? Well, they have an uh, iPhone and Netflix. Yep. And so they have less stuff and less demand for stuff. They're certainly, they tend to be more experiential mm-hmm. than they are. Well, they don't, they, having less stuff is important. It's not important for them. Yeah. What is important for them is experience. Yeah. So if you were to ask, I believe, I've tried this across the country, speaking to millennials, whether it be college students or, or people in the workplace, now, if I could buy you the latest 4K curved screen plasma TV or pay for you to go and climb Kilimanjaro, which will you do? 99 out of 100 will say, I'll climb a mountain. So they are about experience, less about stuff. And therefore, they live in smaller spaces. They don't cook as much. Mm-hmm. So the formal dining rooms, no. So I think uh, what the spaces they need, give them anywhere between 1,000 and 1,500 square feet. Even with the, as a family, they are just fine with that. Mm-hmm. So they have, they have less stuff. Um, and therefore, can we provide housing which fits that smaller space? And also, within that space, you're finding housing designed in a lot of respects, the way you design a boat, a place for everything, everything is place. So you've got counters which can move, um, in multiple uses for individual pieces of furniture, these kinds of things. So I think architects are having a lot of fun with that uh, and with figuring out you know, how do you best utilize the space in which you're in. 
that's a big thing. Um, you mentioned UV cars. Uh, I mean, we talk, we obviously we're well into the world of hybrid. Um, Tesla people actually did make enough cars this quarter, which is astounding. 5,000 was it? Yes, they did. Yeah. They made it uh, in the month, not quarter. So um, I, everyone's saying, you know, is this going to be the latest thing? Is it going to make it a huge change to us? Well, two things. One of which is, I think common for driverless vehicles is at least a decade away. Mm. It's a long time. Mm. Secondly, my argument would be is, if we have them, yes, we can probably move more functionally quicker because cars will know when to start, stop, have you. Yeah. But when that car's got you to where it wants, where you want to be, where does the car go? Is it going to drive around the neighbourhood <laughs> trying to find somewhere to park itself? Uh, it, it is kind of unintended consequences of it. My biggest fear, however, when you talk about um, electric and certainly autonomous vehicles, long-distance trucking. Mm, yeah. It's a big, big concern. Yeah. Amazon is looking as a company very closely at it, sure. how they can make it work. Again, it's, a, it's about a decade away, but we have about th between three and four million long-distance drivers, truck drivers in America who are going to be out of a job. Oh, wow. That, does, that is a worry that I have when you talk about autonomous vehicles. Mm. Less us with our, our Teslas or Priuses or whatever, more so the Mack trucks, the which Mac drive trucks. on their own. Wow, that's a large population of, of workers. Exactly. <laughs> I'm wondering uh, how you, I mean, if that happens, I wonder how you re, replace that or re-establish them in a different career. And that, well, that's what's happening really across the country, not just in that respect, okay. but we look at automation. And the reason why you, let's say, manufacturing employment. Now, we can have an administration that touts the fact it made you know, another 300,000 jobs in the first 18 months or whatever of the administration, but yeah, we've been trending down in manufacturing employment since the 1980s. It's going automated, mm -hmm. which makes total sense. Yeah. Now, my big concern with that, yes, we'll see a bit of an increase, but it's really not going to get back up to anywhere near the levels that we saw mm -hmm. back in, in the 80s and before then. How do we retool, no pun intended, yeah. these people? Uh, what are they going to do? Are they going to go back to school? Right. Uh, that is going to be a problem. Are they going to retire? Or, or do they have the financial wherewithal yeah. to retire? You have to understand that 40% of the country has got not penny one in retirement savings. 40% of America hasn't got penny one. It's a scary, scary number. Now think about it. They still believe that Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, I'm going to be fine. Well, Social Security will not be functionally bankrupt, but after my, by my calculations, 2035, you're not going to be getting 100% out. It's going to be dropping down to only 65 to 70%. Mm. So be careful about that. Wow. So, again, so you look at these people who are in those substantial blue-collar jobs. Mm -hmm. um, how long will they be there? Now, you look at automation and you look at mm -hmm. technological advances, become exponential. Yeah. Uh, it's a thing called the Taylor Rule, uh, which basically means that it, it, actually the co-founder of Intel, um, uh, who says that you know, as long as you can double the capacity of a transistor every other year, then technological, technological advances will be ex become exponential. Wow. And that's true. So our, our technological advances are becoming faster and faster and faster. We're in the Star Trek days already. Everything that yeah. Gene Roddenberry came up with in the 60s, we have them all, <laughs> but pretty much most of them. Teleporter, I'm Maybe still not teleporting, that. that's, that's the <laughs> one thing. I'm waiting for that. But beyond that, <laughs> we can essentially do. We're talking yeah. to our phones, they're answering us back. Um, it, it's, it's quite amazing. And as that continues, again, you're going to see a decline in, in that class of employee. They, what are they going to do? Now you look at again, my youngest, my son William, it's all about STEM, science, technology, yeah. engineering, mathematics. That's where you've got to be. Right. Because without it, not going to work. So uh, that, that is a fear I have over automation 
Um, so we look forward. Yeah. Yes, you'd, we've kind of gone from housing onto a bigger sure, thing. Sure, sure, sure. But I, I certainly see as many issues with technology as I see advances right. in technology. Um, uh, the other parts that I've seen, um, I think telecommuting was a big thing for a while, failed horribly. Really? Yeah. I, you know, I gotta tell, I gotta say, maybe it has on a uh, on a global mm-hmm. uh, scale, uh, but but I've been a remote employee, as you know this. I've been a remote employee going on to twelve years, yeah. and, and have been able to uh, service clients and, yes. and conduct business, finance business, uh, in multiple states, and um, very successfully. Oh no, and, but, and you, and you have But them. I'm wondering if this is the exception to the rule. I, I would say it is. Okay, and here's why. Huh. There's two essential reasons why everyone thought it'd be great. Roll out of bed in your bunny slippers, kind of yeah. fall down the stairs, and you're in front of your it's laptop. That's not what happens. <laughs> and call it good. Um, here, here are the two issues with it. One of which is the employer questions whether you are working or whether you're doing your laundry. Performance, yeah. Performance. So it becomes a big thing then. That's only one component. The other component is the employee. A lot of employees, they, they miss the symbiosis of discussions around the water cooler. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, of being in the, the, the World Cup pool or yeah, whatever it yeah, is yeah. Uh, and being That's essentially isolated. Yep. I say, well, you know, I, I've got video conferencing stuff, but it, it's not the not same. The same. And people miss that. Yeah. They miss the fact they can have two distinct lives, one in their homes mm-hmm. and one outside of their homes. They want to go somewhere. Yep. So even people who are self-employed, um, a lot of them will have an office somewhere mm-hmm. because they don't believe that I can stop one of my lives and I walk out the door and start another uh, in my business and then go back and forth. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yes, certainly, I, I, it's a very broad brushstroke statement. Not everyone, obviously, yourself, being remarkably successful in doing what you what you do on uh, a, 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 a virtual basis or virtual manner. A lot don't. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that that has not been the panacea sure. that a lot of people, and certainly a lot of cities and states, thought it was going to be great. Yeah. It means less people on the streets. Right, right? Less, less people cars on the roads. On the road, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and that, in general, really has, has been a, a, a plan which has not succeeded. Well, I can see the points that you made as far as not having the social network mm-hmm. uh, in your work fit, workplace uh, and not having those interactions. I think that's a big challenge. And, and also the distractions that can come from a work, uh, an office, home office are there. And you have to have diligence and systems to be able to overcome those things. But uh, I think the biggest challenge uh, facing a remote employee is not having that social work social environment, right. and that is that has an impact. I think the way to overcome potentially some of that is by people having, like you said, a, an office that they can go to, whether it's a club that you go right. to, or whether it's a uh, Regis program. There's all kinds of companies out there. Or we work like that. very much there right now. Yeah, and they're, they're the ones that are growing like weeds right now. For and so they're much busy. And I, I've been to these several of their buildings in Seattle. Very busy, but again, demographic very very young. Uh-huh. Uh, small one, two, three people companies. Very interesting. Okay. So yeah, here's another question. What is the coolest house you've ever seen and how did it look like? <laughs> and why was it cool? Why was it cool? Well, I was very fortunate to see uh, Bill Gates' house just ah. after it was built. Okay. Well, uh, that was kind of surreal. Was uh, it? Yeah, it's sort of on the basis of the fact that uh, you kind of did a, a survey on yourself before you went in and you wore this badge and, and the room, every room you went to, Changed according to your, to you. Wow! Uh, the lighting, the, the heating, the music. Cool. It's quite, 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 pretty cool actually. Yeah. Quite remarkable. Um, other than that, I, I'm minimalist. Um, yeah. So, uh, the cute, most amazing place I, I've ever stayed actually was on a 
a house a houseboat a narrowboat in in England. Um, what, what is that? Narrowboat. Narrowboat is it's a very skinny, very long uh-huh. uh, steel boat, um, and it tends to go up and down the canals, uh, which are very very narrow mm-hmm. in the UK. And again, it's just the way it was designed on the inside that everything fit in everything else. It was just it's mm-hmm. kind of like a Tetris puzzle, uh, quite frankly, and mm-hmm. it, it placed for everything. So it was very small, but very amazingly cute, <laughs> but um, but just laid out so perfectly. And that, for me, probably given the fact I'm an economist, I, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate uh, that, that cleanliness the the uh, of it. And obviously, I've seen some quite amazing, remarkably huge houses of, uh, of business associates sure. and clients of mine. Uh, and they're all they're all fun in their own different ways, some of them more so than others. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think it's hard to beat Bill Gates' house. Somebody. Yeah, that's kind of cool one. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's some penthouses uh, that I've been to in some condos downtown, which are uh-huh. uh, one developer house, one in a... Um, 1512 building on 2nd Avenue. And uh, he's actually got a, a, a lap pool on his deck, which is kind of cool. Very nice. Uh, kind of weird, especially when you're facing west out over Elliott Bay. And you've got this, <laughs> this bizarre short pool on, on your deck. Um, but it's not only a lap pool, it's one of those uh, ones that pushes water against you. I think a continuous pool Conti- or something, something like that. Like that. Yeah. 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 His wife, it's uh, great for swimming. Wife's an avid swimmer, oh, so wow. that's why. Cool. So that's that's kind of a cool one. So Matt, um, you mentioned the narrow boat, and yeah. my mind went to: uh, was this a friend of yours that owned the boat, or was this like an Airbnb kind no, of a friend, experience? Friend of mine. Okay. Yeah, a friend of mine, uh, okay. a couple that lived on it, and uh, they're having dinner one night. Okay. Just, they, I just thought it was cool. just wickedly cool. Um, so, Airbnb uh, house sharing. Yeah, Airbnb. What, um, what do you, uh, what do you uh, think? What do you think about that? I know Portland has outlawed it, um, or at least at one point did. Yes. Um, how do you- the, the bane of hotels. Uh, <laughs> hoteliers hate them. Yeah. They think they're taking market share from them, etc. Et they are. Oh, oh, no, there's no question they are. Yeah. Um, is there a place for them? Yeah, it's fascinating. I think it allows you to probably become closer to your environment. And I would say, let's okay. let's say, um, I, I love Paris, um, one of my favorite cities in the world. It's a lovely place. So the 30th Arrisons is where I'd like to go, which is the base of the Sacre Coeur, uh, which is the, the, the church, a place called Montmartre. Um, Kind of close to the Moulin Rouge. Yeah, yeah. Um, hotels are great; they're fun, but there's something better than staying in a house. There, you feel I more agree. tied. I agree. To, to your environment, rather than, a, and I say it's kind of um, sterile. But I mean, a hotel's a hotel. I spend way too much time yeah. in hotels in, in my business travels, uh, which is fine. So I don't want that on, on vacation. Yeah, or when your personal travels, you want right. a, a, a real, authentic exactly. experience. Yeah. And, and my wife is a very, very avid cook. Cool. So uh, she wants a kitchen, and that's the way it works. So I, I think it gives you better, closer ties to where you are. Yeah, and that I would Absolutely. say is something that uh, is say the genesis of Airbnb. People are using it. I think what we're seeing some interesting nuances with Airbnb right now, which we're not hearing that much of yet. Hmm. And that is people saying, uh, "I want to sell my house." Hmm. Okay, great. And the house gets valued by the broker, mm-hmm. and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Then they say, "Well, no, no, no. Um, yeah, my house might be worth that much, but I make." Thirty, forty thousand dollars a year on Airbnb. Hmm. Therefore, the house should be worth more because of it. Really, I wish I knew. So that. <laughs> you're almost finding like a business. Very hard to do, impossible, quite frankly. Huh. But you're now finding owners saying, you know, no, it, I, this I generate a reasonable amount of income from this. Yeah. Therefore, my home should be worth that much more. It's hmm. fascinating. I only heard it a couple of times so far. Wow. Likely, we'll hear more about it over yeah. time. 
but people actually are attaching a, 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 an Airbnb value oh, yeah. to their residence. It's cash. It's cash flow. I mean, you've you got to value cash flow. As, well, yeah, economics. right. And that's the thing. So you mm. can do that. That That's the equivalent to a another $500,000 in your mortgage payment, yeah. so, for example. Wow. Fascinating. Okay. That's worth something to, to go back in time or come back and, and revisit in a, a year or two. Uh, Matt, so talking about cash, if you had $100,000 right now, what yeah. would you do with it? <laughs> how would you? Uh, maybe, how would you invest it? Okay. Well, caveat emptor. I, I'm I'm not a stockbroker. I, <laughs> I, I have I pay people to do that stuff. You, yeah. So whatever I say, ignore it. Yeah. Um, that, that's just my. I'm sure my firm's lawyer would wish me to say that. Yes. Um, I'm a great fan of bricks and mortar. Okay. Uh, but a choice for a hundred thousand uh, dollars. Um, I would argue that the equity markets are overbought, but. Again, it's not my my world of, of, of knowledge and experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, Hundred thousand. Okay, here, here's what I would do. I pay down my debt. Pay down your debt. Okay. I I, I, um, a, I despise debt. Uh, I'm an economist. I don't like it. I think everyone should have it. However, <laughs> in this country, it is a requirement. Right? Yeah, it is. Because uh, we, we need to build up our credit. Therefore, we have to take out credit. Yeah. Uh, I'm a great believer in, in mixing that out. So, for somebody. Um, I've I, I inherited or whatever $100,000 I don't carry any credit card debt but uh, I, I throw it against my mortgage yeah. which is the only debt that I do have cool. um, again age wise uh, with my youngest son I know it's going to cost a fortune to go to university Yeah, um, I, I would probably put it into a 529 plan or something like what that, that? For him. Uh, it, it's an investment you're basically prepaying for mm-hmm. college uh, okay. essentially okay so you buy like the the year like, yeah, like freshman. Credits. Yeah, you can buy credits essentially. Oh, okay. So there's a lot of plans that are out there. So because it's going to be, I mean, he's 14. My guess is, any of your listeners, if you have early teenage children, understand one thing: they are more than likely going to have to get a master's degree to get a job. Hmm. Okay. Wow. It's scary. I mean, they're, they're looking at undergraduates. I mean, no one's. If you're hiring a, a receptionist. We've almost got to a point now by you have to have an undergraduate degree. It's not not good. So now, as I was saying, it's applicable across the board, but that is something. So I, I would say 100,000. I mean, if I had a million dollars be different, I definitely said I'm a big bricks and mortar fan. I'm a big, big land person. So we're, not making, land. we're not making more land. That's what I would do. Yeah. But for, for 100,000, although it sounds awful to say, uh, almost minimizing the amount, sure. it's not. Yeah. Um, if you have those horrible credit cards, um, pay dump down. them, pay them down. Nice. Great advice. Great advice. All right. Let's go back to you. Um, what is your greatest fear? Uh, you know, fear in my life has been something that I've always tried to identify and mm. address. So sharks. Uh, I was afraid of them and I started learning how to surf. <laughs> just, wow. That's just going for it. Just, just as a way to address it head on. Um, have you? I mean, I didn't think about uh, I mean, I think we are a fear-driven society. I think that's what's driving a lot of our, our politis, political direction right now, yep. um, which is never a positive, uh, nor should it be, but it very much is the case. Mm-hmm. We're being told now, do this or um, n- not a good way to go. On a personal basis, um, what am I? If you don't have fear of dying, I, in general, I, I doesn't worry me, but asphyxiation is mm-hmm. something which, which mm-hmm. I'm petrified of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think... Having found out in later years, I got stuck under a bed when I was two years oh, old. Oh, did you? Oh, that, wow. That, apparently, yeah. according to my therapist, anyway. <laughs> um, so, um, but, but I think fear, I mean, I, I think it's very easy for us to be fear-driven. Yeah. Uh, and I think that the more we think about these things, the less we are prepared to go out and do. 
So again, like yourself, scared of sharks, yeah. learn to surf or yeah. kayak or whatever, get on the water. Yeah. Uh, because I think if we do start overanalyzing too much, we're never going to leave our house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and That's true. that is the worst thing, quite frankly, to do. So uh, for, for me, it's... Um, Attack! If you if something scares you, attack yeah. it. Yeah. Go after it. Right. Solve it. Um, don't be worried because again, we are put on this planet for a finite period yeah. of time. Don't let it hold you back. Ever. Yeah. Um, that would be a, a terrible thing to do. So go for it. Yeah. Um, so we're all scared of something. Yeah. Whatever it may be. Uh, as we have so many phobias, uh, they, sure. they, they run out of names for them. They, <laughs> they seem not to. The kind of cool names. <laughs> but uh, I think turn around, face it, confront yeah. it. Because you do that. If you don't, then you're not really living. And that's the worst place I would argue to be. I agree. Um, <clears throat> what do you most value in your friends? Honesty. Honesty. Okay. Uh, that's I a think, good quality. It's very good I, quality. Yeah. I, it's, I have always said the same thing, and that is I have actually very, very few friends. I have a ton of acquaintances. Yeah. I can name my friends on one hand. Um uh, but there again, there are also people, and three of which are, are in Europe, mm. that I know I could pick up the phone now, say I'm stuck, three of them will be here by tomorrow. Wow. So uh, yes. I'm very, very fortunate. Sure. I think everyone seems to think they have a plethora of friends, that they, they, they consider their own existence based on the number of social media contacts mm. they have. That's not, not me. Yeah. I can't do it. So um, honesty uh, and, and trust. And so I think uh, people, friends I have, um, they're honest with me, whether they are telling me good things or, quite frankly, telling me things I don't want to hear. Yeah. But I think so often we don't do that. We're not honest with people. Yeah. And now we can say, oh, you're looking great and this is fantastic and wow, you're so cool, <laughs> you're working out or whatever. You know, no. Yeah. Um, we need that honesty because the trouble is, if you look at generations now, they seem to require positive affirmation all the time. I see this with my younger son as well, hmm. uh, with William. Um, and that's great, but when he when he does something wrong, I, I call him on it. I think that's important. I think so many people don't do that. And I could talk about the mm. demographics reason why for a long time, which I mm-hmm. won't, but mm-hmm. we can have these parents now that want to be friends to their children. I don't. I don't want to be William's friend. I want to be his father. Yeah. And I think that's important. That's a, that delineation is remarkably important. Okay. Uh, so um, I, as far as my, my friendships are concerned, yeah, honesty. Honestly, and trust. I think if you do that, then that opens up yourself up to that person, and vice versa. And so the walls come down, and you can be honest with each other. Yeah, that's amazing. Great advice, <clears throat> Matt. Who are your heroes in real life? Ah, uh, I mentioned earlier on my, my greatest hero was my grandfather. Yeah. Um, Tell you how to uh, tie, how to tie a bow tie. tie. Yep. Uh, um, I still have uh, to learn that skill how, well. How to do that? <laughs> um, He's the one that told me that when you're walking down the street, you walk on the outside of the lady that you're walking with. I mean, these yeah. are, I mean, it's very, oh, Edwardian. Gentlemen. Well, it's, it's, yeah, open doors to people. Um, yeah. Lady walks into a room, stand up. I mean, these yeah. kinds of things. And he beat me if I didn't do it. I mean, not physically, but I mean, it, definitely it was, uh, he frowned upon it hugely. Um, and so I think that without a doubt, um, in, in real life, I would absolutely say my grandfather. Now, you mentioned Edwardian. What, what is that? Oh, Edwardian period, uh, during the, the reign of Edward. So kind of early 1900s to about 1920, I think, okay, okay. Uh, Now going back in my English history, which I've <laughs> forgotten. So the Edwardian period came out. So Victorian period was 1850 to 1903, and then Edward came after that. Okay. So uh, the period of the early 1900s. Um, and so, again, it's, uh, 
honour and respect were, were two huge things for him. I never forget when I was probably six or seven walking down the street in London with him, and I walked past a, uh, a guy who was working as uh, Sweet Street. Sweet. Sweepers? Yeah, street yeah. sweeper yeah. person. Um, uh, and he stopped st- me, made me look at this this guy. I'll never forget. He said, yeah, Matthew, well, yeah, you will show as much respect for this man uh, as for any other. As matter what he's doing, because yeah. guess what? He's working. Now, don't forget, this was through the early 70s. We were going through a pretty major recession at that point in time. And you think, you know, he's out there, he's doing his job, and he's doing it well. Doesn't matter what status in life you are, whether you're rich or not, respect everyone around you, whatever it is they are doing. They are part of that society. It's a thing that you told me, John, I'll never forget. Um, show respect for anyone, irrespective of class, creed, color, uh, whatever. It's mm. respect everyone. And so he, yeah, he gave me the life lessons. Yeah, great life lessons. Beyond knowing how to tie a bow tie and, <laughs> and, and standing up and the lady walks into the room, that kind of thing. Oh, nice. Very cool. Um, wow. Uh, sounds like an amazing gentleman. He was. Uh, so which, uh, uh, here's another question for you. Which living person do you most admire? Somebody that's living. Oh, wow. At, uh, um, and, I, I, I there, there are so many. Okay. Uh, I think if you talk about the, the more global, I've got to say, I've got to say Gates. Gates. Um, Bill Gates. Yes. Okay. Uh, oh, sorry. Yes. Um, okay. I was fortunate enough when I, when I first met him. I actually met him through uh, his, his parents, ah. his stepmother Mimi, um, and his father Bill Senior. Hmm. Um, and this was way back, actually, when we were trying to raise money to build the sculpture park in Seattle. Oh wow! Um, and so Mimi's a good, lovely, lovely lady, and, and yeah. Bill Senior's a any old nabbers great man but I think that when you look at what he has and his philanthropic goals um, mm-hmm. and also the fact of you know setting up the program uh, along with Buffett and a bunch of others to mm-hmm. give their money make their money do something philanthropy, philanthropy, right and yeah. philanthropy is, is huge so we don't just see this this handing over of immense amounts of money well, between true. generations mm-hmm. so um, unlike the Rothschilds or, or these other major names you, mm-hmm. you know they're out there doing that and solving quite remarkable problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, malaria, once it got, sure. I mean, picking a, a global issue, mm-hmm. uh, smallpox, I mean, all kind of, mm-hmm. but certainly malaria is something of, how do we create clean potable water? What do we do? Waste. How do we turn waste into energy? I mean, all kinds, kinds of things. Very cool. Taking these ideas which nations should be understanding and doing, okay. but saying, oh, if you're not going to do it, guess what? I'm going to do it. Nice. Wow. So, I mean, taking that, I mean, it, he is very unique, certainly at a remarkable point in time, uh, late 70s, early 80s, uh, obviously irrespective of the IBM stuff, which which is kind of a different story. Mm-hmm. But um, when you look at what Microsoft was able to achieve, what it actually gave him personally, the goal of taking on these these global issues and, and attacking them head on and using and going at them as, in the way that a business would. Because businesses ultimately are far more efficient than governments are. Remarkably, always have been, yeah. always will be. Of course. So taking it in that respect and going through these, solving these problems from a business perspective, but having the financial wherewithal to do it, yeah. I think is quite, quite remarkable. One of the things that stands out from <clears throat> the the research and the knowledge that I have of his activities, Bill Gates' activities, is uh, that he took on the road and went to China, I believe, some years ago to try to, to get the newly rich of China mm. to go into that philanthropic mm. mindset and, mm. and not just pass down yeah. the wealth from generation A to generation B, but rather put it back into society and yep. try to improve 
the world, which I think is a very, very uh, amazing uh, it is. thing uh, to do. I fear his, his success rate probably not as high as it should be. Uh, and that, again, is a philosophy and a mentality. Yeah. I'm not saying that, that certainly the edge community is not philanthropic. They, they are. A lot of people are. But it, it's a bit harder in, in that respect. But so I, I look at, at what he's doing. And to a lesser degree, I look at Mr. Allen, uh, mm. Paul Allen, um, with his view, certainly that his brain, brain science center he's got uh, set up right brain, now. Brain Institute, yeah. yeah brain Institute. So look at the Brain Institute. But again, what is fascinating about that is not so much what he's doing, but it's open source. Ah. So anyone can come in there and use the data and the analysis that he is creating. He's not monetizing it, he's doing it to give it away. Cool. So again, you look at different ways of doing things. Yeah. You know, I do tend to find, certainly at least in my knowledge from those two gentlemen, uh, one it looks at the, what he can achieve globally, mm -hmm. one looks at it in a very different way, mm -hmm. either regionally, certainly Mr. Allen's uh, interest in the Pacific Northwest is substantial, yeah. but looking at it in base of said open source software, uh, or, or or just the data from, from the Brain Institute. You know, we're creating this stuff, come on in, use it. Nice. Uh, work with us. I mean, how to improve, I think we've done so much better, uh, exponentially so, when you do that. It's not saying, you know, I'm paying all these guys all this money to create a proprietary thing. Mm -hmm. It's here, now it's here for everybody. Nice. That, that is remarkable. That is remarkable, wow. We'll have to do more uh, research on that and maybe bring uh, somebody from the Brain Institute as a uh, future guest. You uh, should. So, what do you consider the most overrated virtue? Overrated. Overrated. Um, um, I, I'll be honest, I think academia can be somewhat overrated. <laughs> okay. um, huh. I mean, I, there's, I, I know an awful lot of professors and they're great, they're, they're fun. Um, but when you get into that point, you've taken your PhD and, and with, with a view to getting tenure and to be a professor. Uh, I think that when you get to that point, you, you could be losing actually out a lot. Um, I'm not saying that, that being smart is not a good thing. I think it, it clearly is, uh, and it's going to become increasingly so. But sometimes we can just get so much in the weeds. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I can look at some of the things which I, I know which I had to learn when I was at school that I will never use in my life. I'm never going to use Latin uh, or Greek or all these things which I had to be force-fed when I was seven years old. Um, just not going to happen. <laughs> now, there will those, maybe some of your listeners will argue with me and say, well, hang on, Latin's the basis of almost all uh, modern languages, therefore you learn that, it makes other languages easier to learn, up to a degree, yes, but uh, I'm certainly not going to use that much of the algebra that I learned when I was <laughs> that age either. But uh, I, it's um, overrated. Um, abilities, I, I, abilities are more unique, so I don't think we can categorically make out one particular thing to be overrated and I don't like people that spend all their time talking about the one thing they're great at well, that's good to know but yeah. I don't need to know it for three hours yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I think sometimes it's very easy for us to do that sure. again it goes back to that argument of, of proof of self Yeah, proof um, of self, to, yeah. Be, to be part of, of an environment we've got to be brilliant at something or, or know something that somebody else doesn't then you, it's a slippery slope yeah. you're going down that's interesting. Fascinating. So you, you're, uh, you're British. Is it British? I'm, yeah, I'm British, yes. British, okay, okay. Um, can we talk about the, the recent wedding that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that um, the royal family sure, had? Sure, Because, uh, you know, it was it looked like it was a beautiful event. I've seen pictures. I unfortunately didn't see the whole thing. Yeah. Um, Neither did I. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but it, it brought a lot of discussions, a lot of people talking about, 
you know, the royal family and royalty in, in the world. What, yeah. What's your Well, I, I'm an unabashed royalist. Okay. Um, okay. Always have been. That's, that's, and I think, I'll be honest with you, I believe that it was a lot easier to be that way up until probably the 1990s. Okay. What happened in the 1990s? Uh, I think people are now say, well, hang on, you've got all this and we don't. Um, oh, okay. Why does, the, why does the monarchy exist? Sure. Without really thinking about it, I, I think, again, I think migration patterns tend to play into that as well. Mm -hmm. I understand the fact that as much as America is a melting pot, believe it or not, Great Britain was as well. Mm -hmm. Why? You've got to go back in history. We, Great Britain essentially owned half the planet, quite frankly, um, yeah. you know, including America and Canada and everywhere else. <laughs> um, and so because of that, uh, as time went on, people had an ability, if they were part of the Commonwealth, to move to England. Okay. And they did. A lot of them did. Uh, certainly a lot coming out of India, India yeah. a lot coming out of Pakistan, and so a lot out of Jamaica and the West Indies. I'm sure that enriched, but, enriched the, the Oh, hugely so. Yeah. And it was yeah. fantastic. But they also embraced Great Britain. Yeah. Now I think we tend to see more people moving where they can, yet trying to maintain where, they their, where they're at their own identity mm. uh, and saying, well, yeah, I'm here, that's great, but royalty, why? Uh, they have all this money and they're everyone's bowing to them and everything else. So I just think there's a there's been a paradigm shift mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In, in attitudes towards the crowd. Now, people of my age and older, and also there's a lot younger as well. Um, again, I, I'm unabashedly royalist. Uh, the Queen, uh, I will be a, she's 92 now. Wow. It'd be a terrible thing when she dies. Yeah. Um, and then I guess some people will question what's the longevity of it? A lot of mm -hmm. people can understand the value of it. Well, the, the value is substantial. Yes, you can say they, they take from the, the, the coffers in terms of kind of protecting them, moving them around. They also provide a lot as well. Mm. I mean, if you look at tourism, some tourism industry in London, everyone's going to go watching the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace. Oh, absolutely. It's what you do. Yeah. So I think there's huge PR value in, mm. in that respect. Mm. Um, where Charles goes, I mean, he's been the king waiting for 50 odd years now. Um, actually, longer than that, 70. Oh, wow. uh, so he's in his 70s. Wow. Um, waiting for the throne. He might be almost 88, certainly 75 when he actually gets to it. So I think a lot of people are saying, well, hang on, we wow. need to create this uh, more contemporary uh, royal family, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that he might be happier. Charles is never going to go away. He'll be king for a time, but mm -hmm. saying, oh, why don't you just kind of sit on the sidelines and give it to William? Give it to William, yeah. And make it younger, yeah. more perhaps um, in sync with with the population, certainly with the What's younger the population, who again is the ones that do all the talking, the most vocal, and so that that won't happen. But I, I think again, I'm an unabashed royalist. Um, always have been, always will be. As fortunate I met the Queen oh. back in the uh, early eighties. Oh, wow. um, amazing, amazing family. Certainly, the lineage is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. I hope they don't go away. I don't yeah. see Great Britain becoming a republic. Um, mm. I, but at some point down the road. And it certainly won't be Harry. I mean, every time William's uh, wife, uh, Kate, kind of spits out another child, yeah. <laughs> he's, one, he's one step further down the, the, <laughs> the list, ladder. The ladder. So um, I think we've got three now. I can't imagine they have more, but he, he's okay. But that, he, again, you go back to what is termed as the, the heir and the spare. Charles had two children. Back a lot of times, certainly in the kind of 14th century up to even the 17th century, you, a, a 
crown a king or queen had more than one child because it's quite possible one's going to one right. was going to die. Yeah, mortality rate right. for infants exactly. and, and kids. Therefore, you have yeah. the heir and the spare ah. in case one dies. There you go. So that was uh, the, the old the old term that was used. It doesn't happen anymore. Right. Um, I think when I look at, at Harry and William, yeah. uh, and indeed their spouses, um, who but both were definitely did, did not come from nobility themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's not a case of where we used to one prince had to marry a prince or princess from mm-hmm. uh, from another country. Mm-hmm. Uh, that again, a greater attraction to the the, the common people, shall we yeah. say? Yeah. That's been a great thing. I think Meghan's going to do great. And Kate's doing fine. Um, and I think Harry and William, both in concert, represent the country remarkably well. Mm-hmm. I hope they continue. Um, I've been up, I live in America now, so yeah. <laughs> uh, I keep as many tabs on as I can. Nice. Um, but uh, I'm not as directly affected as I used to be. They'll be around, certainly they'll be around until the Queen dies. The Queen will never abdicate. So when she, when she dies and Charles will become king, then it, that, the conversation will probably become a bit more interesting. Yeah. But it stands today, and even when Philip, who's got to be 96, 97 now, when, when he dies, I think that's going to be a terrible thing. Because I mean, he has literally accepted a remarkable job Sound conversations. Right. Yeah. Life. Yeah. I understand that Philip is a prince. Yeah. Uh, Greek. Yeah. Um, but with the, the German and, and British heritage. Yes. Yeah. So, in that respect, he, when he accepted it, whether he liked it or not, he uh, he basically said, "You know, um, I'm just here to support you, and that's my job for my life." Yeah. And that's all he's ever done. That's amazing. So she's quite quite remarkable. They've been married seventy years. Wow. It's a long time. I'm sure they've got some good advice. On, uh, get, on, get them on the podcast. <laughs> maybe one day. Uh, <laughs> maybe one day. Um, okay. So, Matt, as we're wrapping up, yeah. uh, one last question that I have since we're talking about the British and, mm. and the kingdom, United Kingdom. What are your top two or three brands that are based in the UK, whether it's cars, motorcycles, Jaguar, oh, Land Rovers. <laughs> uh, it could be a Triumph motorcycle, yeah, um, uh, or, or any anything really yeah. that motorcycle, motorcycles, Triumph, Triumph, Triumph Bonneville specifically, uh-huh. Bonneville six hundred and fifty, cool. remarkable bike. Um, cars, Aston Martin, Aston Martin. Um, yeah. I'm a DB nine, well, maybe DB twelve guy. Um, the Vanquish is a, just Vanquish. a stupidly insane. <laughs> I would die if I had one, <laughs> literally and figuratively. Um, <laughs> Aston Martin's just the, the car. Let me go back to the James Bond's car. Dave Ock, Dave yeah. Six, back in uh, in Doctor No. So yeah, yeah it's uh, a no. Actually, no. He was driving a Bentley. One after that. <laughs> so, um, but no, Aston Martin is, is a remarkable brand. Okay. Or even Morgan. I mean, Morgan is a oh, yeah. brand of car in Great Britain. Yeah. And every single piece is hand tooled. And Morgan. Every single piece is signed by the person that tooled it. Really. Um, well, there's a waiting list of Morgan, so you can get wow. on it, and you're waiting at least ten years to get one. Wow. People actually sell their listing, their, their place in line huh. to get a Morgan. Uh, um, and that, I, I hate to say it, Marmite is, is a, a bizarre English spread you put on toast or bread. What um, is it? Marmite, M-A-R-M-I-T-E. Mar- Marmite. It's a, it's a yeast extract. It sounds horrible. <laughs> uh, I've yet to find an, Ameri- an American that likes it. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, for me, it's a comfort food. You're going back to when you were very, very young. Yeah. Uh, and so, well, uh, yes, and as you know, I'm a avid tea drinker, but I'm a very boring tea drinker. P- poor, boring PG tips, um, black Indian tea is is what I drink a lot of. Nice. Um, but yeah, there's so many uh, the brands there. I mean, uh, less less the Burberrys, Hunter boots, uh, Hunter boots, best best Wellington boots there are out there. Um, huh. um, barber jackets. I mean, they're they're, they're very the classic icons um, of uh, of England, certainly of the countryside. 
Um, that, that those are probably the, the, the ones that immediately spring to mind. Very cool. Thank you so much for sharing those. Sure. And and one one last question. Yeah. If you were to if you were to give a book to a friend or family member, what is is there a book that you give? Is there a suggestion? Oh, wow. uh, is it an economics book? Is it? No, I, I think. I, mean, I think textbooks and these kinds of things are. Uh-huh. And there's so many. I mean, there's so many remarkable books out there. Um, Jonathan Livingston Seagull uh, is the name of the book, uh, and of course, I am blanking on the author. Google it. Um, <laughs> uh, oh, Richard Barr. Very short. You can read it. Take you half an hour waiting for a, uh, waiting for a train or a bus or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, so it's a book about a seagull. About a seagull. Uh, okay. Uh, it will. I think that the the lessons. I'm not going to give too much away, <laughs> but um, just just read it. Read it. Okay. Uh, I, I literally can pick it up, uh, or not Audible books or whatever, um, or Kindle. Um, it said it's a very short book, very quick read. But I, I, it's one which I read first when I was probably 15. It just stuck with me, hmm. and so um, very think, cool. Those that that's that's the one I would I'd probably go with. All right, I think that's uh, that's my next book to read. So uh, Matt, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and our listeners on Sound Conversations podcast. We hope to uh, revisit with you in a year or so and and talk about what's happening in Seattle and the economy. That'd be fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome. Take care. I have been a rich man and I have been a poor man and I choose rich every time. Don't be one of those people 20 years from now are going to be walking around in a 9 to 5 job miserable and angry and bitter. Sound Conversations. Guys and gals, uh, thank you for listening to Sound Conversations podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We want to hear more from you and what you like and what you want to hear more about. So if you could, please check us out on soundconversations.com, Instagram or Facebook, and please leave comments and suggestions for future episodes. We want to hear from you. And more importantly, we want to provide you with content that you want. So check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and let us know what you'd like to hear.